Welcome to the EggerSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. So AgriSafe Network has a tagline of protecting the people who feed the world. So if you're not familiar with us, that is the primary um, purpose of our organization. We really work through about four channels by doing an ongoing uh, needs assessment of ag producers, following something that we call a total farmer health model, looking at where farmers work and live and how that impacts their health. We train a number of rural health professionals across the nation, including rural nurses, uh, social workers, um, mental health providers, kind of the list of folks that are, are actually in contact with our producer audience. We also establish partnerships with our NIOSH Ag Centers, Rural Research Centers, and other nonprofit organizations that function in the occupational safety space. And then lastly, we maintain a culture of readiness and organizational expectation to protect and respond. Hi, everybody. I'm Emma Bergfist. I'm an MPA epidemiology MPH candidate at Tulane's University School of Public Health, and I'm also an AgriSafe Public Health Analyst. Today, I'll be talking to you about COVID-19 and contact tracing. To start off, this material was paid for by the Department of Labor under the um, grant number SH99084SH0. So first, let's talk about the background of COVID-19. COVID-19 is a newly discovered infectious disease which affects primarily the respiratory and cardiovascular systems. The official name is SARS-CoV-2, but a lot of people call it COVID, Corona, and COVID-19. It originally started in bats, but at some point it jumped into humans, and as we all know from there, it spread very rapidly across the globe. Overall, there have been nearly 100 million confirmed cases, and doing the math, that comes out to roughly about two out of 125 people in the world that means globally have had COVID at some point during this pandemic. And there have been nearly 2 million deaths worldwide attributed to COVID, showing that this is a serious force to be reckoned with. Continuing on, let's talk about how COVID-19 spreads. It is a respiratory disease, so it's gonna spread from inhalation and uh, touching those types of receptors. So it spreads from person to person, either from air droplets or from the surfaces. See that as particles leave one person's body, they are suspended in the air and are inhaled by another person. This is how one would contract COVID-19 from the air. It can also be contracted from surfaces. So let's say this person breathes out, they're infected, and their air particles fall on the surface and somebody else comes along, touches it, and touches their nose, eyes, or mouth, but they might have the receptors to contract COVID-19. In that case, they would infect themselves. So there are a lot of signs and symptoms of COVID-19, so let's just quickly define signs and symptoms. A sign is going to be something that can be directly measured, such as temperature or respiratory rate, whereas a symptom will be something that a person will feel, such as loss of taste or smell, and something like a fever is something that will be both. There are a lot of signs and symptoms of COVID-19. These are going to be fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, joint pain, chest pain, loss of taste and smell, and fever. These generally seem pretty general for a lot of infectious disease, which is why uh, the uh, symptom of losing taste or smell is going to be one of the biggest indicators for COVID-19. Uh, there are also some ways that 
the disease can, that we see using signs and symptoms that we can indicate that the disease is getting more severe. These are going to be indicators such as a blue lips or face, shortness of breath, increased difficulty breathing are one of the most common. In this case, we you wanna get yourself or your employees to a hospital as soon as possible if this occurs. COVID-19 can also be rather deadly and it has some long-term effects. We've seen people who've had COVID-19 have inflammation of the heart, prolonged injury to lungs and neurological issues. Some people don't uh, get their uh, sense of taste or smell back afterwards. So how can it be deadly? Well, COVID-19 can cause uh, damage to the lungs and heart. And as we know, we get our air through and oxygen through our lungs, which is then pumped through our body through our uh, heart and cardiovascular system. If one or both of these are damaged, we might not be able to get enough oxygen to our organs. And in that case, it would result in organ failure. This is worst case scenario and does not happen to everybody. But if you are somebody who's at risk, this is how it can be deadly. So why specifically are rural areas at a higher risk? Well, there are a couple of factors that play into this. And starting off, let's talk about age. In rural areas, there is a higher average age. Uh, in almost 20% of the rural population is above the age of 65 years old compared to only 13% in urban areas. Furthermore, the average age in rural areas is roughly 73.3 years. And as we know, and I'm sure everybody's seen, as people get older, there is a less uh, likely chance that you're going to have a beneficial outcome with COVID. You're at a higher risk for a bad outcome of COVID with COVID. The next reason why rural areas are at risk are due to health and behaviors. There are higher rates of cigarette smoking in rural areas. And as we know, COVID-19 affects the lungs. So that means people who smoke are going to have a uh, worse are likely to have a worse outcome of COVID. Not a guarantee, but it is a possibility. There is also a much higher rate of chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity in rural areas. And these are all linked to having a more severe case of COVID. The next thing we wanna talk about in why rural areas are more at risk is the rural morality penalty. This basically means that in rural places, there are up to 130 4.7 per 100,000 excess deaths due to health disparities. And this is not because rural areas have an increasing death rate. It is because urban areas have a faster declining death rate. But this still puts rural residents at a uh, higher risk when it comes to health care. So why is this? This can be due to a combination of factors. It can be from education, distance to hospitals. As we know, rural areas tend to be more spread out. So it might not be a quick 15 minute drive to hospital. In some places it could be an hour plus. There is less access to care as well. Another example is that half of rural counties do not even have intensive care unit beds. When we look at COVID in this pandemic and we look at how there's an increased age and increased comorbidities that are linked to more severe cases of COVID, this is not a great recipe. Um, and this is a recipe for disaster. So you really want to make sure that we are protecting your workers and the residents to make sure that we are not using up any of the limited resources that are there. And lastly, there have been, especially during COVID, a lot of out-of-state visitors fleeing the cities to try to get away and escape this uh, pandemic. And especially during the ski season, a lot of places that are snowier, people are running to and trying to enjoy the winter. What they don't know is as they're bringing the disease in, they're putting a bigger strain on the rural communities.
So COVID-19 has a unique impact on women and there are a lot of gender impacts of COVID-19. Historically, women, especially rural women, have suffered from health economic crises, much like the one we are currently facing. Some of the ways these women are impacted are from food security, nutrition, time poverty, access to healthcare facilities and services, and being put at an increased risk for gender-based violence. Furthermore, COVID-19 is increasing women's work burden due to school closures and the additional care needs of sick household members. We've seen huge upticks in gender-based violence and domestic violence during lockdowns. And we've also seen a lot of women leaving the workforce during COVID-19 um, to help with their sick family members and uh, to help with children at home school. So it's definitely, we're seeing a huge impact on women and this could be long lasting, we hope not, but it's definitely impacting women in a very unique way. So there are ways to physically prevent COVID and it's definitely something that we want to do. So the first step is to protect yourself and others. This are gonna be the basic measures that we know, such as wearing masks. This prevents uh, those particles from getting out into the air or from you inhaling those particles from other people. The other way is from social distancing. The further you are from somebody, the less likely you might inhale their air particles or that you uh, they might inhale yours. What another step is to slow the spread. So that we could do harsher measure methods, sorry, uh, such as uh, lockdowns and work from home and the contact tracing is a way to slow the spread. So how do you diagnose COVID-19? Diagnosing is a really important part of contact tracing because we need to know when people are positive in order to uh, trace their contacts. So the first way you can test is through a diagnostic P PCR test. PCR tests look for active infection. They detect RNA to see if the virus is actively replicating in your cells. Can typically be done through a nose or cheek swab and these are really great tests. There are some issues because they can there can be leftover RNA strands for a couple weeks, but in general, these are great tests and they've been absolutely fabulous with combating this pandemic. The next step or uh, the next type is an antibody test. These can look for active or past infections. So IgM will signal, which is immunoglobin uh, M, signals for active infection, and immunoglobin G signals for past infection. What these do is active infection shows that you are currently sick, and past infection will say that you had the disease uh, a certain period of time ago. When you have these, you may or may not have the antibodies to protect you from future infections, and we're not sure if you do have full immunity, how long that lasts. That's something that's still in the works and what scientists are still looking at. Now let's talk about the natural history a little bit. The natural history is not necessarily the historical impact of COVID-19, but rather the pattern we see emerge in infected individuals. It's a tool we use in epidemiology to know exactly what to expect and how to combat these epidemics. So the first term we wanna go over in natural history is the incubation period. This is the time it takes for a person exposed to COVID-19 to have the disease. Typically it ranges two to 14 days and normally 50% become ill within five days of infection. At the beginning, not too many people will be showing symptoms, 50% at around um, five days, and then it gets close to about 80% by seven days, but we almost have 100% by 14 days, which is why you see, uh, which is why you see those two weeks until you get COVID uh, type of, uh, ordeals on social media and in the news and everything, they keep saying it takes 14 days because we want to make sure we're basically catching everybody in that net when we say it takes 14 days for people to get COVID. 
the next term and when we discuss the natural history of COVID-19 is going to be talking about the infectious period. This is when somebody with COVID-19 can transmit the disease to another person. So this starts typically two days before symptoms start and ends 10 days after onset, onset when signs and symptoms are improving and there's been no fever for three days. That once somebody becomes infected, they typically have between two to 14 days until they are actually going to be infectious. So now let's talk about R0 and the containment of COVID. So what is R0 and how, why is it important? Well, R0 is the reproductive number. This means that it is the average number of people an infected person will infect. So if I had COVID-19, I will typically infect two to three people. Of course, there are people who are going to infect way more and there are going to be people who infect way less. People who infect a, a significant amount more will be called super spreaders and we do not like them. <laughs> they are a big trouble in epidemiology. But with R0, we wanna get the number to below one. So when you have an R0 of one, you just see a nice straight line. It's not going up or down, but it's a consistent infecting. That means it, it's not spreading, it's not going exponential, but it's just fine. It's, it's there in the, in the community, but it's not really going up or down, which is not necessarily what we want. Right now, COVID-19 is above two. So we can see that that goes exponential. So you might be wondering, how do we get it to below two? How do we get it to below one? Well, that can be done through a lot of different methods. Some of those are going to be wearing masks, which will bring down the R0. Uh, social distancing will bring it down, uh, work from home orders, stay at home mandates, and as you might have guessed it, contact tracing can also help bring that number down. And the more effort we put in, the more we'll be able to get that number decreased. So rural areas can uh, be at a particularly unique threat uh, from COVID-19. So like other respiratory diseases, COVID-19 can be spread via air particles such as air droplets or dust. And because agricultural work can expose workers to a high amount of these particles, it puts ag workers at a much higher risk. COVID-19, as discussed earlier, also spreads person to person. And this is a unique obstacle in the agricultural industry as close living quarters of migrant workers and close working conditions of meat packaging and et cetera, um, that can also accelerate the spread of COVID-19. So COVID-19 is a workplace hazard. As I just said, it's COVID-19 can spread quickly and it is already rampant in our society. Because of this, it must be considered a workplace hazard. Additionally, with COVID-19, some employees may be at a higher risk due to occupation. Close living quarters for migrant workers, close working conditions, maybe for meat packaging, and also in agricultural, like I just said, uh, COVID-19 can possibly be transported on dust particles and other uh, types of air uh, molecules that you might be exposed to in an agricultural setting. Because of this, it is especially important to proceed with caution in the workplace in regards to COVID-19. This means it's important to implement preventative measures such as contact tracing. So, now let's get into the meat and bones, which will be contact tracing. So what is contact tracing? I'm pretty sure a lot of people have heard this term, especially in the news, so let's dig in a little deeper. Contact tracing is a form of containment for outbreaks, which works by following those who've had the virus and those who've been in contact with in order to identify possible infected individuals and prevent them from further spreading. So why is it important? Like I just said, it's really a big key to stopping the spread of disease. 
the key to preventing further transmission of the disease by separating people who've had it or may have it and infectious disease from people who do not. And again, like I said, because it can spread before symptoms are even present and it can spread through people who are asymptomatic, case investigation and contact tracing activities must be swift and thorough and they're super important to make sure you're implementing in your workplace and in your community. There are luckily a lot of contact tracing trainings, especially directed at COVID-19. The CDC has put out wonderful trainings for the general public and its primary focus is remote contact tracing. So this will be through uh, phones, computers, et cetera. Johns Hopkins training has also, or Johns Hopkins has also put out a training and it was, I've done this one and it was really wonderful. It was offered at the beginner level and they really do a great, deal of explaining the disease so you understand it. They teach a great deal of the natural history, the basics of contact tracing, ethical considerations, and they also give scripts and stuff where you can uh, kind of have a nice methodology to follow on contact tracing. So when do you implement contact tracing? Well, in general, let's pretend to imagine the pandemic as a bell curve. Not exactly what we're seeing, but in maybe a workplace, it might present itself more as a traditional bell curve. So we want to implement it during the containment phase of the pandemic. This is going to be early on in the pandemic uh, during containment. This is before it's gotten out of control, and this is to prevent widespread transmission. We are past this point. For example, in the United States, this probably would have been back in March and April when most places had no to very little cases and we would have been able to stay on top of those cases early on and uh, kind of gotten people to shelter in homes quicker who might have been exposed. So then if the numbers get out of hand, we might stop it. So then when you reinstate contact tracing, that's going to be during the suppression phase of the pandemic. This is again towards the end of that bell curve when cases start to level off and decrease and before serious measures are lifted. So before you might bring workers back from home or the work from home orders might be lifted or the curfews or whatever might be lifted, that's when you wanna start instating contact tracing before you lift that to help continue the reduction. So when do you stop contact tracing? And basically it's gonna come down to uh, each place. It's ideal to keep it going as long as possible, but I, in a real world, that's not gonna be possible to just constantly keep up with contact tracing. You're basically gonna stop if there are not enough resources and if there's too many cases to keep up with. So in this case, you're gonna implement stricter restrictions for example, working from home, and you're gonna wait until cases begin to decline before lifting the restrictions and reinstating contact tracing. So contact tracing versus case investigation. They're pretty similar, but they are different. Contact tracing is the subsequent identification, monitoring, and support of a confirmed or probable cases close contacts who have been exposed to and possibly infected with the virus. Whereas case investigation is identification and investigation of patients with probable diagnoses of COVID-19. Basically contact tracing is just a little bit more in depth. It takes that extra step to look at um, the, con uh, the uh, infected or possibly infected person's contacts to notify them. And it's more of a uh, ripple effect. So let's talk about contact tracing in the workplace. There are a couple ways to make sure that it's, a, it's effective, it works, and that you're keeping your employees safe and uh, making the best use of your time and money. Number one is you wanna act quickly, as fast as possible. You wanna be quick and efficient. The longer you take, the more the virus, COVID or future viruses, if we end up in another pandemic, 
will spread through the workplace. Number two, you really wanna make sure you keep confidentiality. Absolutely under no circumstances should you be releasing the name of an infected person, even if asked. You can tell someone when they've been in close contact with someone who's had or has had COVID. Uh, you can do this by saying somebody in on their group, sector, floor has had COVID-19. And lastly, you definitely wanna use local health departments. These are gonna be a wealth of knowledge. They can probably help you set up contact tracing um, abilities and they will be able to trace beyond the workplace to find any extraneous points of spread. So let's say you're worried that some of your employees are hanging out after work. You might wanna investigate that, but in some states that might pose some legal issues. So local health departments and notifying them would be a huge help because they might be able to dig a little bit further beyond the workplace without stepping on anybody's toes. So what is a close contact? This is a big word that we keep using, so we might as well define it. A close contact is somebody who has been within six feet for more than 15 minutes while the person had symptoms or 48 hours before symptoms onset. That 48 hours, it goes back to the infectious period because as we remember, the first day, you're still infectious two days before and it decreases over time. So while you have symptoms, you're still infectious and you're infectious two days before. It all goes back to that infectious period are not natural history talk. And again, why six feet or 15 minutes? That just has to go with the chance and the probability of, of inhaling um, somebody else's um, air where they might have gotten those virus particles into the air. So how do you keep your employees safe during this pandemic? Well, here's a couple of recommendations uh, that I've been able to find and to put together. Uh, one is you wanna maybe start using shift work. During a pandemic, it is recommended to break up individuals by shifts. One, this will make it a lot easier to track possible spreaders. And also using schedules within shifts will also help to see who is coming in close contact with one another. If you house them and employ workers and need to transport them, place those that live in close quarters and transportation together. This will help reduce contamination between groups as much as possible. It might also be beneficial to break employees up into smaller groups. So maybe people who live together, transport together and work in a small little sector together. So if they're working in a particular place on the floor, you put them together and if you're housing them, maybe house them together as well. This again will just help reduce the number of spread, the chance of spread, and if one of those people is sick and you know, okay, it's group two who's sick, they all have to stay home for a while or go get tested after a set amount of days to help prevent uh, the spread of COVID uh, that would be widespread in your company. And it, another way to do this is to strictly implement uh, PPE and social distancing. If your employees don't have PPE, and this is medical PPE, not necessarily agricultural PPE, make sure that they have it. Make sure that they're wearing masks, they're washing their hands, and they're staying six feet apart. Um, and then, and this is also six feet apart in, while working, while transporting as much as possible when they're working or on their way to work, make sure that they are uh, social distancing. And next you wanna make sure that you're screening workers. So you wanna take their temperature reading and ask if they've experienced any symptoms before entering the workplace. You also wanna encourage workers who've had any symptoms to stay at home and seek medical attention. And also maybe take temperature readings before entering the premises and prohibit workers with a temperature over 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit from entering the premises. So carrying on, uh, another way to do this is to notify local health officials. 
encourage workers to report their condition to supervisors if they feel sick and ask them to stay home. Do not punish them for missing work due to an illness and maybe advise employees about any available sick leave benefits for agricultural workers, including paid sick leave under Federal Families First Coronavirus Recovery Act. Uh, when you have a sick employee, have them notify local health officials and this may be putting uh, notifications out to them yourselves. Uh, you can also keep the workplaces workspaces as clean as possible. This means having hand washing station and way to disinfect commonly used items. You also want to make sure that your employees not only know about COVID but understand the risks and the disease itself. If they just know that COVID is rampant but they don't exactly understand how it spreads or how to take measures against it, it's not going to be a whole lot of help. So do this by distributing information to your employees and make sure it is done in their native languages. So here are some procedures to implement social distancing. You might want to use a stick or a tape measure to demonstrate six feet of distance. Wherever it is practiced, um, whether it's outdoors, in vehicles, or in structures. During lunch breaks and break times, provide additional seating and shade structures to allow employees to be at least six feet apart. You want to provide adequate time and space for workers to clock in and out at the beginning and end of each of the work shifts without crowding. This could also include staggering lunch times, clocking or staggering clocking in or out times. To limit crew sizes, consider breaking up employees into, into groups as we discussed earlier. It may also be beneficial to hold meetings and trainings in small groups so workers can maintain six feet of distance between each other. You want to stress the importance of PPE and social distancing to your employees even during non-work hours. Explain when they need to stay home and if, uh, if they have come into contact. Establish good locations for receiving regular deliveries away from the farm. High traffic areas and housing. Create specific written instructions for deliveries. Provide signage that easily identifies drop-off points, including contact information. So you just really want to make sure that you can have contact-free deliveries and make sure that your employees are not coming into contact with drivers and drivers aren't coming into contact with your employees as much as possible. It might be beneficial to place drop boxes or drop off locations near the road so vehicles do not need to enter the farm. And here's some good sanitation practices to implement in the workplace. You may want to ensure hand washing facilities including soap, water, paper towels are readily accessible especially near restrooms and heavily crowded areas. You want to also make sure that these are kept clean and sanitary and that they are uh, definitely in stock. You want to encourage employees to frequently use washing facilities and allow enough time for frequent hand washing. And when it comes to tools or things that people might be using um, across like a large group, you want to make sure that they might be able to disinfect uh, these tools um, in between uses. And if they can't, maybe see if you could uh, limit the exposure where somebody is sharing. So maybe get those disinfectant wipes that, um, that where somebody can wipe them down. So when do can employees return and what do you do about returning employees? Well, one, you wanna make sure your employees have fully recovered from COVID-19. So those who have tested positive from COVID-19 should stay at home for at least 10 days and until symptoms get better and there's been no fever for three days without the use of medication. Those who've had 
who have been in co close contact should stay at home for 14 days and can return if they show no symptoms in a negative COVID test. So this again goes back to the natural history of COVID. You wanna wait at least 10 days because as we saw earlier with the infectious period, that's typically how long it lasts. And you wanna see that these are getting better, not worse, because once they're better, you're probably getting less infectious or you're no longer infectious. When it comes to somebody who's been in close contact, this goes back to the incubation period. After 14 days, we knew that was about 95% would start showing symptoms or get COVID. So we know that uh, after 14 days, uh, and nobody has symptoms in a negative COVID test, they likely will not have an active infection. So it will also be good to conduct a workplace assessment. First, you're gonna to wanna to collect existing information about workplace hazards. You might wanna ask what are agriculture workplace hazards for COVID-19, for example, close working quarters. Next, you wanna inspect the workplace for safety hazards. This may be assessing where COVID-19 could be spreading throughout the workplace. Are there certain places where it's spreading faster? Are there certain hotspots uh, that you've been noticing where people who are going around there or during their workday are maybe getting COVID? Next, you wanna identify health hazards and conduct incident investigations. This may be asking which employees are contracting COVID-19. Where have they been? Who have they been in contact with? Then you're going to want to identify hazards associated with emergency and non-routine situations, as well as characterize the nature of identified hazards, identify the interim control measures, and prioritize health hazards uh, for control. So you might want to ask, are they work-related? Can they be prevented from distancing and mask wearing measures? And can contact tracing maybe help? And lastly, how to keep yourself safe at work. Let's say you're an employee and you necessarily can't implement all these uh, procedures. So how do you keep yourself safe? Number one is just make sure you're wearing PPE. If you're wearing your personal protective gear, you're not gonna uh, be at risk of maybe infecting others and you're gonna be less of a risk of inhaling the air that somebody else might have infected. Be sure to wash your hands and not touch your face as much as possible. You're going to want to socially distance. The further away you stay from people as much as possible, the less likely you will be to um, get somebody else sick or get sick from somebody else. Maybe track who you've been in contact with. It might be good to keep um, a mental note of your schedule, who you spend time with throughout the day. That way, if you know that they've been sick, you might already know if you're a close contact or if you show up sick, you might be able to tell uh, who your close contacts are already. It will be good to report to your employer and health officials if you or a close contact has tested positive for COVID-19 and when possible, take transportation that prevents you from being in close contact with others. For example, in, uh, avoid riding buses and other public transport if possible. Instead, consider driving, walking, or riding a bike. That's all I have. So again, hats off and thank you, Emma, so much. That was a wealth of information. Um, thank you for taking the time and, and breaking down things and, and helping us understand how we can stay safe and keep um, employers and employees safe uh, working in agriculture. Everyone stay safe and thank you so much.
thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agrisafe.org, and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at agrisafe.org.